0: Greetings Wilkinson here. Today my guest is Jay Craig Fung and we've been best friends for what 27 years? Not really. 27 <laughs> minutes I think. Yeah we met what a couple weeks ago? A yes. week ago? Yeah and uh, learned a little bit about him. and I said oh you're an interesting guy. Gotta have you on my podcast and he's good <laughs> enough to come in here today and, and do it. So first of all um, Jay say hi to my people that are listening.
1: Hello to everybody who listens to Wilkinson.
0: Good to have you. Where do you want to start? Well, start with I was born. Do you want to do that? Sure,
1: I can start with that.
0: <laughs> tell a little, just tell a little about your family situation and where you grew up, that
1: kind of thing. Sure, I grew up in the on a fruit ranch. That's an interesting idea—a ranch full of fruits. <laughs> a fruit ranch in the uh, San Joaquin Valley, up okay, in Fairfield, California. Um, I'm an only child. My mom and dad are both Chinese American. I'm Chinese American. And I grew up in the fields. Do I, don't I look like a farm boy?
0: Not really. You're a little sophisticated look I that.
1: Probably that's true. <laughs> and um, I've been practicing law for about 30, 40 years. I just retired full-time this year. And so I'm now a recovering attorney. And uh, this year I started serving on the airport commission for Palm Springs International Airport. So that's the All right, You,
0: you grew up on a farm up north. Yes, and you're not there now, so something happened. Where, where were you in between there?
1: Um, well, after I grew up, uh, I, I would tell about the age of 12, I grew up in 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 Fairfield. And then for a lot of reasons, my family just decided to move to the San Francisco Bay Area. My father's family, my mother's family, they're all from the San Francisco Bay Area. So I went to school there, in high school. And eventually, I studied hard enough that I ended up at Yale and then later on at Penn Law. So I went to school back east, and then uh, after I graduated, I came back here, decided I'm a Californian, and I did not want to be in New York or in Chicago practicing corporate law. I did it for a few years and hated it, so I decided to come back and do stuff in the community because that felt more like me. What kind of law did you you do? I did uh, banking and uh, banking law mostly, commercial law, for the first, uh, I guess about the first four or five years, something like that. And then after that, I really didn't want to do it anymore. And actually, I got so sick of the work, I I, I literally left my job without having secured another one, right? The old thing about you don't shouldn't quit your job until you've got an, another right. one. And I, I just couldn't stand it anymore, so I left. And uh, I ended up working at a community law center, and this was during 1986-87 when the very first amnesty program got started. Okay. And they needed people who were able to work with clients. I spoke some Spanish. I I studied in Spain for a little while. So I spoke Spanish. And so I helped with legalizing about 1,000, 2,000 immigrants during the 1987-88 time period. And that's Mm -hmm. how I got started with immigration law. And I loved it. Mm -hmm. So I stayed with it.
0: Where were they from, the people immigrating?
1: Well, this... This particular uh, immigration project was part of the Asian Pacific American Legal Center in Los Angeles. So a lot of the immigrants there were, um, of course, from Asia. But what was interesting was that it got around in the community that, unlike some of the places that were handling these cases, because this legal center had a full staff of attorneys and we were pretty experienced, as a result, the more difficult cases in the Latino community came to us as well. Oh really? So they began to th- those cases began to find us. So we began to develop a reputation in the the Spanish speaking community of being able to do these cases. And it's very strange because the very first time I remember coming out of my office, and I, you know, the receptionist says, "Okay, this person is next." She pointed to this this gentleman, and he turned to her and said in Spanish, uh, "Can I get one that speaks Spanish?" Because he looked at my face; I love Chinese. And he said, "Can I get some?" Well, you to speak- are Chinese. Exactly right. It's appropriate that you look. so. <laughs> and he said, "I want one that speaks. I want one that speaks Spanish." And
0: you spoke back to him. In and Spanish, so I right.
1: spoke back to him and I said, "Yeah, I do speak Spanish." And of course, because I studied in Spain, I have a very strange accent. Uh-huh. And so he looked at me like, "What planet are you from?" Because he had, this was just completely unexpected. Right. So that was kind of the experience I had with a lot of the clients there. But it was a really great time to be practicing immigration law. And I stayed with it for the rest of my career.
0: Were you able to help him?
1: Yes. uh, Most of the people who had these cases, it it was really about demonstrating that they had been living in the United States for a certain amount of time and being able to document it. You had to have proof that you were living somewhere, rent receipts, bank account, you know, pictures, photos, enrollment in school, whatever it was, you had to show that you were physically here. And for some people, they throw everything away. Um, they didn't have anything. Mm. And we were actually one of these centers that helped them reconstruct, go back, do some imagineering. Where else did you go? Where were you going to school? Try to go to the front office at that school. Go, go to the dentist's office. You went and got your teeth cleaned once a year. Go and talk to your dentist, have them write you a letter. These kinds of things were, we were able to put together to help them, you know, find the proof that they needed so they could get their Mm amnesty.
0: And I'm guessing today is a totally different situation, right?
1: Well, of course, now there are many more uh, undocumented people in the United States that some estimates are as high as 11 million people. Wow. um, Which is a lot. Um, And, of course, a lot of them are refugees from other countries where things are pretty bad. But the problem is the U.S. immigration system is set up to bring in people either with very rare skills like doctors and nurses and things like that, geologists, engineers. And then there's a family system. But if you are from Honduras and you don't have any relatives in the United States, if you're going to flee Honduras, cause it's dangerous, I would understand that. But if you don't have any family here, how are you going to come to the United States? Cause it's a family based system. So for a lot of those people, they'll just, they'll just run over the border and they'll stay here illegally because they're too afraid to stay in their own country. So we've, we've got to redevelop reconstitute our immigration system to allow for the fact that uh, a lot of these people don't have a relative in the united states we need to figure out a way of, of legalizing these people some people shouldn't be here you know and i have no problem with saying if you if you, if you got a criminal record we don't want you here so i have no problem with that but even if you figure that out of 11 million people and a lot of them are women and children 11 million people, let's say 1 million of them don't qualify because they have a drug problem, they were shoplifting, whatever. So you got them out of that 11 million, let's say a million of them don't qualify. That's still 10 million people. Although everybody likes to talk about the cost of immigration, I actually like to think of the benefit. Because not only could, if all those people got legal and started working and started paying taxes, Remember, everybody says, oh, immigrants, they don't pay taxes. Well, that's because they're not legal. They can't work legally. If You give them a work permit and give them a social security number, suddenly, like everybody else, they're paying taxes. So that's a good thing. Right. And you could get them into school. You could get them paying taxes. You can get them funding IRAs, and uh, their kids could go to school. And of course, the other thing that's interesting is that if these folks get legalized, you can charge them. For that green card, um, there was a program way back in the 80s and 90s where if you were here but you were illegal, we would let you get your green card, but it would cost $1,000. So in addition to everything else you were doing, you had to pay the U.S. government $1,000. Now, it's they, this is 30 years later, 20 years later, charge them 5000 And And you figure, if there's 10 million undocumented aliens that you charged every one of them $5,000, that's a lot of money. You could put that toward education. You could put that toward housing. You could put that toward health care for the elderly. You could do so many things with that.
0: You could put it in the politicians' pockets.
1: I sure hope (laughs) not. They've got enough.
0: So, you did that for how long?
1: My full time retirement was this year. I started slowing things down last year, but basically, I retired as of this year. What are you doing now? I've wanted to do something to just participate in the community. I live here in Cathedral City. And I wanted to find a way to participate, to give something back. So uh, a friend of mine who used to serve on the city council in Palm Springs said, you know, we're trying to make Palm Springs Airport into a real international airport. Uh, Not just Canadians, but airlines all over the world. It's still too small for that. We need an immigration station. We need a customs border protection office there. Maybe you can help us because you know that side of immigration law. So I threw my hat in the ring, and the city council of Palm Springs said, you're on the commission. So I am now a commissioner of the airport.
0: So so it's an appointed position. It is an appointed position. How long does it last? Three years. Okay. You've been in
1: it how long? Since July 1st. (laughs) So I'm still getting my sea legs.
0: How do you like it so far?
1: It's a very interesting airport. It's a small airport. There's about 3 million people who go through that airport every year, and that's Last year there were like two million people, so the numbers are just skyrocketing. Um, but don't make it into some big hub. No, I agree with these. It, it should. I would love to be able to have it retain its character, but expand the international co- connections to a degree. We don't need you know Aeroflot and Lufthansa landing here with a seven seven forty seven every every day. We don't need that. There isn't the demand for that anyway. But as you know, during the high season, Air Canada comes here three times a week from Toronto. They come from Vancouver once or twice a week. Um, I would love to be able to see Scandinavian or British Airways or Air France do a a once-a-week or twice-a-week flight here during the high season. It allows people from here to connect into Europe. It allows them to visit here. It's great for—I mean, we we talk about how great Palm Springs is during the winter months. Well, if we started promoting— Palm Springs is a place, not just for Canadians, but for people from Northern Europe. It would be great for business. It would be great for the airport. And for us going the other direction, it's great for us because it gives us connections to Europe. So it would be a great thing to try to achieve. But right now, the airport, there's only like nineteen, twenty gates right now. It's a little too small. And we need to have an immigration station there. So until we do, uh, we're probably going to stay the way we are right now.
0: But you said they want to expand it.
1: There is talk about expanding. There are plans. Mostly it's just talk right now, but they are proposing to, to expand the airport to as many as 30 gates. Right now there's 1920 gates, so the idea of expanding to about 28, 30 gates is a big expansion. But, you know, we're never going to be Los Angeles. We wouldn't want to be. We, um, I'm not even sure we would want to be as busy as Burbank is. Um, but it would be good to increase the size of the airport, not only for those here in Palm Springs who want to travel out, but those who want to come in and do it in such a way that it the airport becomes a vibrant place that's great for the economy that's good for the local businesses and that allows tourists to discover the 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 Coachella Valley the way we know it so it would be great if we could do that but it's a it's a long term project
0: and you came to Palm Springs what year
1: we bought our home here in 2010 but we've been here full time since 2020
0: why Palm Springs
1: uh, well, it's interesting because when I first fell in love with the Coachella Valley, of course, it was 2010, 2012. It was much quieter, smaller, a little bit less busy than it is now. I still love the area, but the truth is is that it's gotten busier. There are more people who are thinking about retiring out here. And as the years go by, there are more and more people who are in the LA or San Francisco area who say, I'm going to go down to Palm Springs. So the the area, I'm sure anybody who listens to this and knows the area, knows that the population is growing. So uh, there are more people now. It is busier now. The streets are busier now. But I liked it because it was a sense of peace. It was quieter, uh, even though it's a very difficult place to be when it's 115 degrees out. But one of the things I love about Palm Springs, especially at night, especially when it's very hot, there is a, a velvety quality to the heat. It's almost as velvet the feeling of velvet. The air is still, and there's sort of a quiet life that's going on underneath that. And I would really hate to lose that. So I'm hoping that, although I want the area to grow and be successful, I hope it manages to preserve that feeling.
0: Is that just humidity? <laughs> well, they always talk about the dry heat in the
1: desert. It's a dry heat. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> if
0: you've been around the last couple of years, well,
1: I was going to say it's we, changing. Exactly. We just had a hurricane, and believe me, that storm was very moist.
0: How can you have a hurricane in the desert? This makes no sense.
1: Well, you know, I, I mean, guess who's the running still, the show? It's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> they, maybe they needed to call it something else. I mean, why do we got sandstorms? We call them a boobs. Right. I'm sure we can find a good name for a. a a desert rainstorm,
0: yeah, did you survive that okay?
1: Yes, we lost a few branches from a tree, and the cats were fascinated. They sat in front of the window and watched everything blowing around. They were fascinated. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I figured better safe than sorry. I mean, I lived in Seattle my adult life, and you know, we'd always have warnings about something, and they ninety nine percent of the time it never happened. so it's like, yeah, yeah, but this time I thought,, mm, probably be safe than sorry. So I moved with a friend, everything out of the backyard disassembled everything, put it on the side of the house and tied everything down. It was a nightmare. And of course nothing blew away. <laughs> nothing was even close to being. Blew.
1: Now, did you get a lot of water? Was your
0: garage yeah, it, flooded? Or no, anything? nothing flooded, but I, you know, I was watching in the backyard. I emptied the pool like six inches, which was needless. I didn't need to do that. Uh, I couldn't fill off that much, but the, um, I've got a drain in the, like a long drain in the middle of my patio on the, the new concrete I put out there a couple of years ago. And that would flood and there'd be standing water. But then, you know, it came and bursts. Yeah. So it would come, it would flood, and then it would drain away. And then the next one would come. So we just kind of like flood, drain, flood, drain, flood, drain. But never came anywhere near the house.
1: Well, you know, I live up in the Cathedral City Cove. So all the water that hits the side of the mountain further up just comes rushing down. Right. And I was really concerned that although I wasn't so much worried about flooding into the house but that there would be rivers or channels of water coming down right and although there was a lot of rain it wasn't too bad we were lucky
0: i went up to um joshua tree um, a week ago and i can't believe the stuff i saw going up there it was they had some major flooding on like highways up there it was like wow this must have been a real mess
1: yeah, and I guess it depends on where you were and some of the infrastructure around you that determined how bad it was.
0: And then Date Palm and the Vistachino, oh, she, you couldn't you couldn't get off at any of the normal exits. So I'm I'm up there coming back it was a nightmare. So you know Indian Canyon Canyon is closed, Jean Autry is closed. So I go to a Date Palm. Then I was so pissed off because I get off there and then going down Vistachino, no signs forewarning warning you. Yeah. Then they close that. So I had to go all the way back and go all the way around. It took me forever to get home. I wasn't happy. But there were there were businesses you could see were flooded. They yeah. were flooded up. there. That, yeah. that intersection.
1: Course, the, the same is true even if it's not raining because, of course, they close Vistachina and Date Palm and those kinds of things when there's a sandstorm, when right. there's no visibility. So we see the same thing. It's just not rain.
0: <laughs> right. Right. But I don't know why they don't put a sign out there saying, giving a warning ahead of time. Because there was just... The city of
1: Palm Springs Police Department has, like, a notification system. Somebody told me about that the other day. Yeah, you sign up for it, and every time there's a closure, or let's say the there's a, a sandstorm or something, and they close it for visibility, or if they reopen it, they send a, a, a text message to your phone. What surprised me was just how often Dane <laughs> Palm and Vistachina actually well, get well, closed, closed for so. the wind. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's quite something. How is your coming out story? My coming out story? Well... Uh, of course, in the the early middle seventies, when I was coming out, I was in the San Francisco East Bay, and of course, a high school kid in those years coming out um, was out pretty—I won't say dangerous. Nobody harmed me, but there was a lot of hazing. They—they they made it. People made it clear. My classmates made it clear that you know this made you a strange weirdo. And I actually left one high school. I used to go to El Cerrito High School, which is in the East Bay. And the the hazing was so bad that I went to another high school. I transferred to another high hazing of others or of you? Uh, of me personally, there were a handful of students who felt that whenever they saw me, they it was they would just take uh, verbal potshots at me. And I was uh, young enough, inexperienced enough, and certainly uh, insecure enough that I didn't know how to defend myself. I didn't know how to stand up for myself. So what I did was I transferred to a different high school, just just like a mile away, and I went to what's good to John F. Kennedy High School in Richmond, and it was like night and day. I, I came in, I certainly knew who I was, but because I was in a new environment, um, I didn't feel the shame that I was taught to feel at mm-hmm. the other high school. So instead of being this little cowering person. I ended up student body president. I ended up one of the editors of the yearbook, and I was on the debate team. Um, But were you out doing that? And I wasn't out, but I wasn't in. It was sort of an in-between time where I felt that I could just be me. Okay. I wasn't sexually active. I hardly knew what sex was. I was only 16 or 17, but I felt more comfortable being who I was. I I didn't feel I needed to hide. And then, of course, once I got to college... New Haven, I felt a little more open. And then finally, in 1975, I went to live in Japan for a couple of years. And in Japan, that's when I felt like I could be me. I could come out. Um, I had a boyfriend. And it was it was a, a place for me to kind of let down my hair. Uh-huh. So it took me a while to get comfortable in my skin. And of course, during the 70s, uh, this is what, 73, 74, 75, it's not exactly as if... Uh, Uh, It was an easy time for a a young gay adolescent. So you came out to your family? I did not say the words to them. Uh, My mother was a fundamentalist Christian, a very Republican fundamentalist Christian. She passed away in 2002. If she were still alive, she would be a a big Trumper. Uh, I I mean, a big one. But she, she just couldn't get past the idea. Uh, that by being a gay man, I would shame her and shame the family. And of course, in those days, Chinatown in San Francisco was a much smaller community than it is now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of people knew each other. Lots of people in the high school, there's only a handful of high school that serves the Chinatown area. A lot of people went to the same high school. So the idea that my mom's son, me, is going to come out as a gay man and be out in San Francisco... She was just so ashamed that I would be out there, and people would see me, and people would hear from me. And ironically, uh, in the in the middle middle nineties, I was the director for Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund, stationed in Los Angeles. So one of the things I had to do was spend a lot of time talking to the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times. I was on CNN several times. I was on NBC. All these things, and of course, there's my face on CNN. And my mother's friends were like, isn't this your son? So, of course, not only did I come out of the closet, but I was actually representing a community that needed my voice. Right. Because there were so many people who didn't speak for themselves or couldn't speak for themselves. So I did it. And, of course, this was before gay marriage. This was even before uh, gays in the military. You, you couldn't do it. So the idea that there was somebody out there advocating for a a community that couldn't speak for itself was really hard on my mom because it was part of the job. It's what I had to do. I didn't mind doing it, but it also meant that my face was out there. I was on, I was in the New York times. I was in the wall street journal, uh, lots of local TV interviews and things like that. CNN, CNN, Spanish, Spanish. So all of that was out there. And, um, It sort of forced my mom to recognize that I was who I was. Uh, It still wasn't easy for her. I think she made her peace with it by the time she passed away, but I don't think she ever liked it.
0: (laughs) Was there any of your, you're my only son type of thing going on? Exactly. You're not going to give me grandkids and
1: blah, blah, blah. No grandchildren. I am an only child. So, of course, it was just me. And of course, you know, for a lot of families, this is not just true of, of Asians or Chinese Americans. But for a lot of families, that the idea of, oh my gosh, you only have one child or only one son, what's going to happen to your family name? Right, And that's a big deal for many people. And sort of moving beyond that sort of standard uh, patriarchy, that standard model for what our families are supposed to look like has really changed. In some ways, I do feel like a father. I've got a godson who's living in Japan right now, and uh, he's... When I when the, his parents asked me to be his Godfather I said, listen I'm not going to hide who I am at the you know at, at any age if he asks me I'll answer him and I won't sugarcoat it I mean'm any answer I give is going to be uh, age appropriate right but I'm I'm not going to hide who I am and they were they were like no, this is what we want. We want you to be able to talk to him and be a Godfather and, and be an example for him. So, you know, when he was seven years old, I took him to the West Hollywood Pride Parade, which was really interesting. what do you do when a seven-year-old comes up to you and says, Uncle Jay, how come the back of that man's pants is wide open? Oh, my gosh. And I said, well, you know, Scott, they're called chaps. Or what are they doing on the float up there? They're they're, they're dancing around and they have almost no clothes on. And they said, well, you know, it's just like grown-ups in a Halloween. It's just It's just a time to have some fun. Um, so, you know, it was an interesting experience uh, watching him grow up. So that that's my contribution to my family's lineage, wow. but I don't have any uh, children or brothers and sisters.
0: So what do you think about the climate out there right now where they're banning books, they're doing all those ridiculous things?
1: It, it's crazy. It makes me angry and it frightens me. As somebody who, as I said, I worked for Lambda Legal for, the long, for a long time, Uh, I've worked with immigrants for a long time, even longer. So when I see our country and all the things that, frankly, I dedicated myself to, right, gay gay rights, lesbians, marriage, gay gay men and lesbians in the military, immigrants being able to make a home in this country, when I see those things sliding away because of a particular mega movement, um, it worries me. Uh there was a time when, if we disagreed with one another, we could say, "Look, let's sit down and find some place in the middle." But with these people, there is no negotiation. there is they, they view negotiation is a sign of weakness. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when you bring immigrants in, they don't just take jobs, they pay taxes. Uh, uh, you know, their kids uh, create the tomorrow for this country it's It's not bad. So the idea that we could try to find a middle ground would be a good thing. The radical right doesn't want to do that. And that frightens me because I feel that for the past 30, 40 years, that's been my life's work. So to watch all of that slip away because, you know, one orange guy, uh, one orange liar is going to peel away all of these advances and progress that we've made over the years. And that worries me. The, The one good thing I will say is that We have made progress, and there are an awful lot of young people who, now that they've seen where we can go, there are immigrants, there are gay men and lesbians in the military, there are gay men and lesbians getting married. Progress has been made. They're not going to let go of those things as easily. So I'm hoping that a next generation, I mean, I'm in my 60s, the next generation will take over. In the same way that we talk about looking at all the politicians and how old so many of them are, and although I have experience to share, there are young people who can step in and take the the reins of leadership, so that they can move this ball forward and not let it be let us and our community be defeated by people who want to roll the clock back to 1950. Right. So I, I I'm worried about it, but I am hopeful. Uh, one anecdote that I'll give you, this was way back in like 1995 or something like that. And I was giving a speech at UCLA because I was doing my Lambda thing and talking about civil rights. And at UCLA, there was a young woman who came up to me. And after my speech, she said, she, she pointed a finger at me and she said, you're not doing enough. How come gay men and lesbians can't be in the military? How come we don't, we still have problems with gay men and lesbians as teachers? We're not, we're able to get married yet. And she she just went at me. Right. And I was, my first reaction, of course, is to defend myself. And I was, I was, you know, I was just getting very uh, upset, angry, insulted. Right. And I was going to say something smart back at her. And I realized it is because of the progress at Stonewall and on Polk Street. And in the Castro, and for that matter, all the activism with ACT UP, and uh, you know the the various propositions in California, and uh, agitating for gay men and lesbians to serve openly in the military. The progress is slow. It is not as fast. It was never as fast as we wanted it to be. Right. But it is because of that progress that this young woman felt she could come up to me and say, "We want more." It was because of all of the us. The people who went before us be, and, and who are still coming up, who are making that progress, it is because of that progress that she was able to have expectations that we should have more. Right. So when I look back now at all the stuff that I've done for immigrants, for gay men and lesbians, if I look at back at that progress now, even with Donald Trump and his like trying to peel that away. I look at that and I realize that people like that who have experienced the freedom, have experienced the progress we've made, those people now have the bit between their, their teeth and they're not going to let it slide back. So hopefully we will have people who want to take this challenge, want to move it forward. Uh, anything I could do and other people like me who have been involved with civil rights, you've been involved with them, anything that they need for to, to pick my brain and for Using whatever experiences I could lend to them, I'm happy to do it. But frankly, right now, the ball is in their court. Mm. So there is progress to be made.
0: Do you think they're going to be able to deflate the ball to where there's no game? I mean, some of the stuff's just scary. I was just reading something. Oh. I was popping on the mm-hmm. internet, and I guess it was in Kansas. Two librarians had a, did do you know that story? I know. About the autism yes. symbol? Anyway, they they did, and they got both got fired because they thought it looked gay because the autism symbol that they were using... Oh, had, I didn't know about that. had some rainbow colors on it. Well, that's gay. And it was explained to them. The, I mean, those in power, they're just so ignorant. It's beyond... Uh, it's just crazy. Well, you know... When, <laughs> and, and, but when, though, of course, there'll be a big lawsuit. Of course, there will be. Of
1: course, there will. Yeah. Well, and you know, the odd thing is is that when we are fighting over a rainbow, uh, I mean, I get the idea that 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 parents want to control... And have some say in what their children are taught, or the books that they're exposed to. I don't think they should be they should have the right to pull those books out of the library, But I'm willing to have a discussion with them, but they don't want to have a discussion at all. What they want to do is politicize a rainbow. We just
0: we want it our way, and that's it.
1: Exactly. It's our way or the highway and and that's never been the way American democracy has worked. You know, this isn't the period of Henry the Eighth where you can just decrease something, lop off everybody's head if they don't agree with you. And go off and do what you want. That's, that, that's not who we are. We, we created this country so that we would not have a monarchy which imposed itself on us. And yet that is exactly what the Trumpers want to do. It's almost as if it were a monarchy and the king, Donald Trump, gets to tell them what to do.
0: And the crazy thing is we can't say, oh, we would never get elected again. Well,
1: it seems to have happened once, doesn't it? I, I, it does scare me. Oh, that, was, that
0: was stunning. I still remember that night. It was like my jaws just dropped. It's like yeah. what?
1: Yeah, I, I, to this day, I still do not quite. I mean, I, I, I read you know newspaper articles and whatever, but I, I still don't quite believe it. And and I say that because the whether you like or don't like the man's policies on taxes and immigration and and any number of other things, treaties with other countries, you could have a discussion about the policies, but. The people who support him don't seem to mind that he's a bigot, a racist, that he's got a problem with women. He's got a problem with gay people. He's got a problem with immigrants. This country is a nation of immigrants. He's got a problem with all of these things. And his racism and misogyny, his homophobia are not deal breakers. It's one thing to say, let's have a discussion about immigration. Let's have a discussion about taxes. right? But to his supporters, the fact that he is as horrible a person as he is is not a deal breaker for them to put him in into office and that's what puzzled me because i thought for sure even if you like some of the policies surely you're not going to put somebody like that in the white house and they did
0: and surprisingly is the christians that were pushing him that's the part i just i i just can't
1: and there are very it. few presidents that have been more unchristian right uncharitable than that man right i just i don't get it
0: oh well so of all your jobs you've had, what what did you like the best?
1: I guess the first easy answer to say is I liked the work that I was doing with Lambda. Okay. Because there, uh, you've got landmark cases representing individuals trying to make progress in the law. And at the same time, going out to the community, talking about what that work is, explaining why it's important— educating, teaching, hopefully opening a few eyes and ears uh, for both people who are normal supporters of ours and people who might not be, but to engage in that dialogue so that that we all understand each other better. It was a great job to have. There were a lot of political problems with that job, not the least of which that the organization really did not like having an Asian American as its spokesman. Really? Yeah. the, The organization at that time was a frighteningly racist place. I like to think I did a very good job. I mean, if you were to look for my name on various things, I mean, my name was all over the place. Uh, I got us a lot of attention nationally, and not because I was an Asian American, but because I was a gay man, willing to talk to the press, willing to, to talk to the newspapers. But there were a number of people, both in management and in the board of directors, that really had problems with people of color, I think. So although it was a great job, there were, uh, there were tensions like that in the job.
0: Has that changed today or No.
1: I think that they've done a much better job. They're uh, more inclusive now. Many of the gay men and lesbian organizations are much better now than they used to be. A good example is a- AIDS Project Los Angeles. Back in the 80s and 90s, when so many people were getting sick and dying, AIDS Project Los Angeles was created to, to provide assistance because nobody would help these people who were getting AIDS. But, you know, with you, you do your fundraisers with Madonna and with Elton John, who are all lovely people. But then when you try to do outreach, as you know, Los Angeles is a very uh, Latino, Spanish-speaking community. When you do outreach to help people, educate people about HIV, for example, they would do it in English. Now, they don't do that now. They know they know what they need to do outreach. But at the time, all the outreach was in in, in English. Nobody said, wait a minute, there's a whole Latino community here. There's all African-American community where culturally, linguistically, you approach them differently. Right. So the gay and lesbian community really had to learn how to talk to communities of color, cu- culturally different communities. And since the 80s and 90s, I think that they've really learned great lessons about how to do that. But what it does mean is that there were some people, I guess I'll point to myself, and there were other uh, people in the AIDS community, in the HIV community, in the immigrant community, and the gay rights community, who didn't want people of color in positions of leadership and really made it very difficult. It was only in about the late 90s, early 2000s, where you began to really see people of color in leadership at the various age organizations, at the various gay and and lesbian centers, uh, the civil rights groups and things like that. Before that, it was a really hard slog. It was very hard to get these organizations to, to recognize that these voices are out there. right? So, yeah, it, it was difficult, but I did love the job. So that would be probably the, the job that I liked the best. The, the Buddhist in me would say, the only thing you have is right now. So my favorite job right now is the task that's before me now, which is as a commissioner for Palm Springs Airport. Uh, I will throw myself into that and try to make it a, a, a good airport even better. And to help it expand, and to help it do great things for the community, so that's my favorite job right now.
0: <laughs> I do not want to wait an hour to go through TSA or two hours like Seattle. Have you? Just have you? Don't do that. Now nope. here at Palm Springs,
1: nope. what's nope. the longest you've had
0: to wait? Two minutes.
1: Yeah, it's very fast. I mean, for me, maybe ten yeah. minutes. If it's a, if it's a, you know, a seven thirty-seven, a whole seven. No, what I'm 7... saying is, don't change
0: that. Don't, let's not grow to the point where that changes.
1: I agree with you. I okay. think that we need to improve and grow without fracturing the charm that we have and, and preserve the area. I mean, that we're never going to be Los Angeles and I don't want us to be. I don't even want us to be Ontario.
0: Well, when I first came here, I mean, you know, you know you're getting off of the gate and then you walk and then you go down the escalator and there's this big... Tent like thing covering, and there's palm trees all around. You you can't get rid of that. That's no, got us. That you has know, to stay.
1: One of the things, one of the studies that the airport did in investigating whether or not they should expand and what they should keep and what they need to change. One of the comments always was the idea that you have this outdoor rock garden covered by this canopy. It's it's outdoors. It's it's you can see the mountains from the airport. Right. Uh, it's not this enclosed place, preserve that right. atmosphere. Right. So hopefully we can do that. I mean, there's, there, it, it's a great little airport. It's a wonderful place. Um, I just hope we can manage to expand it in a way that allows us to bring more international flights in.
0: All right. So we reached the point in the podcast where I asked the <laughs> big question. Um, okay. you haven't listen to. I'll, I'll get ready so, for this. Okay, now, what have you learned in your life? What are some lessons you've learned that you'd like to pass on to my people, sitting there with the years, the years that you got
1: under your belt? What have we learned? I guess there are two, three things that I would fall back on. I would remind everybody: there are three rules. Do good. Do good for others. And don't do evil. So, what do I mean by that? Do good, meaning do good for yourself. We always talk about that. Oh, I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to. I'm going to be good to self. I'm going to give myself some alone time. I'm going right. to treat myself to something. And you should do that. Um, do things for yourself that help you, help your uh, uh, your well being, and at the same time, uh, do good for others. So, whether it's in your job or your church or the the things you volunteer for, don't just think about doing good for you, where it's something in yours to your benefit, but look outward to the community, to to your church, to your temple, to the airport, to a community organization. Uh, somebody, a friend of mine, said, "You know what? They were going to go and volunteer. There's a there's a sanctuary for homeless cats, really, <laughs> in Desert Hot Springs. I think it's called Kittyland." Who would Who would have thought? Who would have thought? And th- this woman has a house, and she's basically turned the whole house over to cats that don't have a home. Now, I'm not going to suggest that everybody should go over and do that, but the point is, it's, it's not just about you. It's, it's about other people, other people's right. causes, other other living beings, and other sentient beings who need our help. So do good for yourself, do good for others, and finally, don't do anything evil. And I realize that that leaves people open to the idea of well, what is evil, and we can have a philosophical discussion about that, but you know there are certain things that are pretty clear, most of us know about you know you don't kill things and you you don't take things that aren't freely given, you don't lie uh you know you look at you don't you know you, you tell the truth you you um, we surround ourselves with things that don't alter. The way we look at reality, try to be realistic. So, you know, there are certain things that that are evil that that you know, even if you don't sit down with a philosophical discussion to have about what is evil, we all know that there's a right and a wrong. And our own vision of what is right and wrong. And I would say adhere to that. So do good, do good for others, and don't do evil. And I think that if we at I spend more time doing that. Hopefully, I and others can make the world a better place.
0: That's great. I think you said everybody knows that. I don't know that everybody does know that. That's the problem. Or or they're choosing not to know it.
1: Big sigh on my part. You're probably right. right. I think it was probably easier to say that 10, 20 years ago. Right. When uh, if I have a lot of money, I get to do what I want. If I founded a major company, I get to throw my weight around. There was much less of that 10, 15 years ago than there is now. Uh, So I I do somewhat agree with you. Um, Because even the idea of taking what's not freely given to steal, you would think that people understand what stealing is. And yet there are all kinds of forms of stealing and cheating that are going on. And indeed, there are many people in high places that used to be, oh, I don't know, president of the United States, (laughs) who had no problem with benefiting from that I mean there's if this man doesn't have enough that you couldn't say to yourself listen I'm going to I'm going to use my judge my business judgment and I'm going to make the world around me a better place but instead it was just no we're going to keep lighting our pockets and I, I I will fall back on the old-fashioned notion that there's a certain right and wrong that we understand and the old-fashioned concept of what that is, I'll simply say, I hope people will fall back on that notion of what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, and do what's right. Well,
0: in all fairness, I did preface that by saying, what have you learned? So you've learned that. (laughs) Not everyone has, perhaps.
1: Perhaps perhaps not. It, It reminds me there is a, I don't know, for those who loved Lord of the Rings, I was a big Lord of the Rings fan. And there's this wonderful scene from the movie and in the book where one of the hobbits is having a horrible time. There's a war getting ready to start. And he says. He turns to Gandalf the wizard and he says, I wish that this didn't happen. I wish we were not going to go to war. I wish I wasn't part of this. And Gandalf the wizard turns to him and says, so do all who live to see such times. Mm. But that is not for them to decide. What is given to them to decide is how to use the time that is given to us. So with that in mind, I will say, I will, and I hope others will, continue to do good for themselves, continue to do good for others, and to turn their back on evil.
0: Sounds like a plan. Thanks for coming in, Jay. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. Have a great day.